I want to welcome you back to our symposium on women's ordination. We have heard so many interesting and varied arguments in favor of the truth. In this period, we're going to hear a few varied arguments in favor of something other than the truth. Uh, the title of my talk here would be Answering Straw Man Arguments and Weak Arguments in Favor of Women's Ordination. And uh, I don't believe in being argumentative, but I do believe in looking at the Bible. We're going to ask God to help us. If you're able to and willing, kneel with me and we'll have a prayer to start our session. Our Father in heaven, you are well able to make your Bible to be food for us. You can teach us what is true. We ask for your spirit to guide us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Turn your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. We've just prayed that the spirit would guide us. And I want to show you one of the most beautiful promises in all of the Bible. Proverbs 1 verse 23 Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. Don't you love that promise? Amen. The promise that God would pour out his spirit and then help you to understand his Bible. And don't those two go together? Receiving the spirit and understanding the Bible. And do you see there's a condition in this promise? that you can't just go and claim the promise that God will pour his spirit on you and teach you, but the condition is that you turn when you receive correction. That when you're going one way and God says turn a different way, that you go ahead and make that adjustment. As long as we're willing to be guided by God's correction, he's going to continue teaching us and filling us with his spirit. If you wonder why we end up splintering in our views, why we end up going so many different directions on fundamental things, it's because we are not in the habit of turning when he corrects us. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Maybe you could say this is my opportunity to preach what I didn't get to share in, in our panel discussion. And... Um, I will do it. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 20. Well, let's start in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Paul isn't asking where are they located. If he was asking where they're located, the answer would change from day to day. But he's asking, in relation to truth, where are they? Are the people who are the real, the world's wise men, the world's gurus, the greatest rabbis, are those people more in harmony with Bible truth than others? Where are the people who are gifted at dispute and arguing? Where are the orators? Are they more accurate than other persons? Look at the end of verse 20. Has not God made, what does it say? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 
The idea here is simple. It's that God wants his word to be the source of truth. He wants us to come to the Bible for our instruction, for our authority. And when men become exalted so that they consider their own knowledge to make them a source of light, if a man feels that because he is so educated that you ought to believe what he has to say, that man is confusing the issue. God never intended that we would depend on men for their wisdom. So he, in his wisdom, that is in God's wisdom, he designed it so that the common man would have equal access to the truth, and even those who are the world's greatest men would have nothing on anybody else when it comes to knowing what is right. Turn one more page to chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4 to 6. We'll be talking about weak arguments in a minute, but first I'd like to mention a few strong ones. Verse 4, it says, And my speech, that's Paul's speech, and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Was Paul capable of speaking with human oratory? Certainly he was capable of that, and he could have done it in such a way that you would have been drawn to listen to him speak. But he says, but it was in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in what? In the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul said that he did not want you to have your, your ideas founded on his great wisdom. And because of that, he willfully refused to use the kind of complex oration or fancy speech that might draw you to think that he's a great speaker. He wanted you to think that the gospel is a great gospel, that Jesus is a great savior, but it wasn't on his list of things to do for you to think that Paul was a great speaker. He said that he did not use those kind of words, that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When we talk about, just now, weak arguments, by weak, I mean the kind of arguments that it seems to me sensible people would not use. When we talk about weak arguments in favor of women's ordination, when we talk about straw man arguments, that that might need some explaining. Very few of these have originated with any other source than the people we read about in chapter 1. The people, the orators of the world, the wise, the scribes. It was that very class of people that God said we should not depend on them. Do you remember how God spoke to Jeremiah about this? Cursed is the man that trusteth in man, and maketh flesh his arm. And what is the natural result in that verse in Jeremiah 17? What happens when you trust in man and make flesh your dependence? It says, whose heart departeth from the Lord. When we're talking about women's ordination, this issue is not the kind of complex issue in Scripture that requires some great knowledge of even Greek and Hebrew to ascertain the meaning of the passages. Why do people multiply arguments? Uh, one of my, I don't know if you'd call it a hobby, but one of the things I do in life as I travel and speak, 
uh, I write, and I am often confronted with uh, publications, often that look like half a ream of paper, that's designed to prove some interesting, obscure, and strange idea. If you ever encounter the shepherd's rod, for example, you will be approached not with a small volume of documentation, but with a large volume of documentation. If you are uh, checking out the man named Ernie Knoll to see if he's a true or false prophet, I'll, I could hopefully save you time and tell you he's a false one, but you might have to check that out yourself. Uh, but if you were checking it out, Ernie and his followers could provide you a great deal of documentation. Frequently, large volumes of documentation are needed to obscure the fact that there is no good, simple proof. That is an idea. If you want to prove that we ought to keep the Ten Commandments, you could do it in one page. But if you want to prove that we don't need to keep them, you might need to write a large book. And I used to have in my own library a large book designed to prove the natural immortality of the soul. It takes a lot of work to try to prove that from Scripture. And if you're going to do it thoroughly, I mean as thoroughly as it can be done, what I'm trying to say to you is that Bible truth ideally is simple. And when an idea is repeated in Scripture in many places, when you can find it in many places, and you put those together, even the simple man can understand it. Nevertheless, um, I've been asked to talk about weak arguments, and I probably should get started. Uh, have you heard some already today, some weak arguments? Uh, I think you heard a few of them this morning. And let's turn to Romans chapter 16 and just look at a couple that we could say a review. Romans chapter 16. We'll look at a couple of weak arguments that we've already heard about, and then we'll talk about some straw man arguments, and then get back to a few more weak ones. Romans 16 and verse 1. I command unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is servant of the church, which is at Sancria. Could your church use a servant? I know the church where I live could use a servant. Someone who just gives their full time and service to doing what needs to be done for the local church. Uh, you know, Phoebe was serving the church at Sancria, but she did something also for the church at Rome. Look down at verse uh, 27. To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Written to the Romans from Corinth. Corinthus, and sent by Phoebe, servant of the church at Sancria. When Paul wrote a letter to the Romans, how did he get it to them? You know, he sent it with this lady. And when he sent it with her, he asked that they would respect her. But to build off of this simple passage an idea that because she was a servant, and because that word servant could be translated some other ways similar to that, that word deacon that we heard about this morning in Brother Sorky's 
uh, sermon. The fact that that word servant can be used that way is such a weak argument. When you take your Young's literal, or excuse me, your Young's concordance, and you look up that word uh, deacon and try to see how it's used in many portions of the Bible, you find what Ingo shared with us, that the word servant is used frequently to mean servant. Look at verse 7. You're still in Romans 16. Look down at verse 7. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles who also were in Christ before me. I preach from this verse sometimes, but it has to do with that phrase, in Christ. Do you see in verse 7 that to be in Christ must be something related to being a Christian? Otherwise, it couldn't be that one person could be in Christ before someone else is. And that's relevant in some other theological discussions. But can you imagine Paul finding out that someone reading verse 7 would think that Junia was herself an apostle, if in fact it was a her? I just want to say it was, just to avoid that discussion. Let's just say in verse 7 that it's ambiguous that either Junia is well known to the apostles or Junia is an apostle. But you know, in the other 40 times the word apostle is used in the New Testament, it isn't ambiguous any other time. That it means the 12, whenever it's apostles plural, the apostles, it means the 12. And are you going to say that if the apostles always means the 12, and right here it's ambiguous, and then you're going to take the ambiguity and turn it into an argument in favor of women's ordination. How can I describe how that strikes me? If you're going to try to tell me or prove to me an idea, I, am, I suspect that you're going to start out with two or three of your very best arguments. And if I find out that your first three arguments have nothing to them, I almost have a hard time taking enough time to hear the rest of the things you have to say. Does that make sense to anyone what I'm trying to say to you? If someone has to resort to Romans 16:7 to make an argument in favor of women's ordination, the very argument itself is an evidence against the position that it's being used to defend. It says that I have to pull and stretch and twist and turn to find some fodder for my cannon. We'll come back to some weak arguments, but I want to talk about straw man tactics. Straw man. So this is a metaphor. You probably can understand the idea that if you want to beat up a strong man, you have a hard time. He might beat you up. But if you can construct a straw man, you know, a man made out of like hay, and you want to beat him up, you can be sure there will be no reprisal. So that frequently in argument, people like to attack their opponent by making up some idea and pretending it belongs to him, and then attacking that idea and proving that it's foolishness. And what they hope to do is that you will think that if the idea is foolishness, their opponent must be foolish. <clears throat> It's called a straw man tactic because your opponent really doesn't even believe the foolish idea. Do you understand the idea of a straw man argument? 
If you don't, maybe you will when you see the example. Uh, do I believe that women should be paid with tithe money for doing ministry? I do. Amen. I believe in it. You know, Ellen White says it so plainly. She describes how even Haskell's wife and the wives of some other ministers who were doing Bible work, that they were doing a work equal to that of their husband. They should be paid and compensated in a way that is square. I believe that. The people I know that were with me on this uh, panel just a few moments ago, I think to the man and to the woman that they all believe that. But yet you will hear advocates of women's ordination talking about their opponents as if they don't believe in fair compensation for the work that women do, as if they're trying to avoid sharing their salaries with women, as if they don't really believe in including women in doing a large volume of ministry. And when you hear people talking about this issue, well, let's just all agree that we all want to see more women involved in ministry, more women paid from the tithe, more Bible workers than there used to be, certainly more than there are now, it's a straw man argument to make us look like we don't believe in women in ministry or fair compensation. Do you understand what I mean by a straw man argument now? It's, in, it's attributing to us an argument that doesn't represent us at all. What about the idea that those who oppose women's ordination take everything with a wooden literalism? <clears throat> That phrase, wooden literalism, has stuck with me ever since I heard someone say it on a YouTube video. And it has just stuck there because I thought he was talking about me. And my response in my heart was, that's not me. I believe in metaphors in Scripture. I believe in, in illustrations in the Bible. When I see a dragon in, in Revelation 12, I don't think it represents a dragon. To talk, to talk about those who oppose women's ordination as if they are wooden literalist is a straw man argument. The truth is that we're trying to come to Scripture and when we find a metaphor to see that it is a metaphor because the context says it's a metaphor. When we find a symbol to identify as a symbol because of something that you can find in the passage. But when we find nothing like that, we want to be ready to be like William Miller and to say to take the passage in its most obvious meaning. We've heard that a phrase very similar to that attributed to the Rio document. Uh, this morning. To take the obvious meaning is not a wooden literalism. It's an approach that matches the way the Bible was written because the Bible was written for common men. And common men are not wooden literalists. The opponents of women's ordination are not either. I hope you can see what I'm talking about. We don't need to tear apart these, these straw man arguments because there's nothing to them. They are straw men. I don't know anyone who opposes women's ordination because he takes everything he reads in the Bible as a literal, non-metaphorical, non-symbolic statement. Or even because he, when it comes to Romans 16, let's just look at that for a minute. You're still there, aren't you? Romans 16, uh, salute 
Well, you could start almost anywhere. You probably see the word salute like 25 times in this passage. Do you see it almost everywhere you're looking? And uh, one of them says, salute one another with a holy kiss. But do do you see which verse number that is? Because I don't have. Verse 16, salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. When you look back at verse 15 and you see, uh, I bet you're all nervous when you have to read these kind of names out loud, aren't you? Philologus, Julia, Nereus. When you see names like that, isn't it obvious that those names were real people in a literal local situation? That the context of the verses just before and after this are all literal and local greetings? Then are we making a stretch to say that when we come to verse 16, that here is an obvious literal local application? And that what we learn from these passages is that we ought to care for our brothers and other churches. We ought to care to acknowledge them when we write letters. That we ought to, maybe we ought to do that more than we do to care for people at a distance. What I'm trying to say, and I've probably said too much about it already, is that wooden literalist might exist in West Virginia and carry snakes. But they aren't inside the Adventist church opposing women's ordination. Do I really believe that uh, all men have authority over all women? No, I do not. And I'll say to you men right here in the audience that not one of you has authority over my wife. (laughs) I do not think for a minute, and I don't think anyone behind me on this panel had the idea that all women are in subjection to all men. Listen, that isn't the reason that we oppose women's ordination. It's not because of some strange construct that would say that the males are the superiors on the planet. It's because when we come to the Bible, we find instructions and we take them seriously. Even if we don't agree on why God gave the instruction, we don't start with why, we start with how do we obey. Uh, Let me explain this to you again. If your mother asks you to dust the furniture, it might be because she wants to teach you some discipline. It might be because guests are coming. It might be because you neglected to do it yesterday. It might be because there's been a dust storm. But none of those are relevant. If she asks you to dust the furniture, what should you do? You should dust the furniture. Then if you get into a discussion afterwards about why you had to do it, maybe everyone can agree and maybe not. When we come to the question of women's ordination, the instructions are not obscure. So the first thing we do is agree to obey them. Now maybe afterwards we can also agree on why God gave them, what the benefits are, what are the purposes. But do you see that whether we agree on the why is not relevant to the first question? That we start with obedience and then come to the why? But whatever the case, none of us think that the why is because all men are in charge of all women. That is just a straw man argument, and I don't know anyone who advocates it. At least I don't know that I know anyone that advocates it. (laughs) And if I find out I do know someone, they will not get close to Heidi. (laughs) 
I do not believe that there are more than one ultimate head of the church. When the seminary document came out recently about headship, and I read it, I got this feeling that I was being, I don't say I personally, but I represent a body of people who oppose women's ordination that I was being fingered as someone who almost believed that my pastor is on a peer level with the Savior. But I don't believe that. I don't know anyone that believes that. And when we say that we believe that there's headship in the church, we're not just making it up. But I told my my friends in the Theology of Ordination Study Committee that I'd be happy to use the word leadership instead of headship if it would make someone happy because that's all I mean by the word head when I read it in the New Testament is just leader. And it's very clear to me that when, when you have Jesus as the head of the church, he never intended that the church would be organized as a where every person takes their orders directly from him, uniquely. I mean, if it was that way, everyone would be a prophet. Do you know even when the Apostle Paul was converted, that God did not uh, give him all his instructions personally, but he sent him to the church to get some instruction? That Paul, when he speaks in Galatians about how he tried to deal with some church complicated issues about Judaism, he talked about those who seemed to be somewhat in the church and how he went to them privately. In 1 Corinthians, excuse me, in Acts 15, there is obviously church order and structure. And it is a straw man argument to say that when we talk about leadership in the church, that we're usurping, usurping the authority of Lord Jesus. I don't know of a, a more unkind way to picture my view of my relation to Jesus than to say I put him on a peer level with one of my pastors or ministers. I'm a lay person myself. The presence of straw man arguments should not, to a critical thinker, should not be evidence in favor of the person who uses them. And I don't want to make a straw man argument out of straw man arguments. So let me just say that not everyone who favors women's ordination resorts to these kind of methods. Not everyone is using these kind of arguments. But I would say that if you don't use anything like the weak arguments or these arguments, you don't have a lot left over to use. And I think that what you do have left over will be discussed repeatedly this weekend and will be settled on those issues. One thing about these straw man arguments is that they have an emotional content. That is, when you talk about Jesus being the only head of the church and the popes don't qualify and, of course, Jesus said don't call any man father or rabbi, when you, 
when you have this truth, isn't this a deep-seated Protestant truth that Jesus is the head of the church? I mean, it's, it's fundamental. And when you talk about it the way some are talking about it, so that uh, it, where it looks like that those who oppose women's ordination are almost trying to get up on that level, and that's going to raise some emotion. It's going to create some, I would call it zeal, some zeal to stop those who want to exalt themselves over their brethren, zeal to put down that kind of arrogance that would try to be on a level with Jesus. It reminds me of what it says in Romans 10, where Paul, trying to speak as positively as he can, he says, speaking of his own relatives, he says, I bear them witness that they do have a zeal. But then he says, but not according to knowledge. We don't want a zeal that comes from our reaction to emotional arguments. The idea that women deserve equal pay. If that raises some emotion in you, that's fine with me because it's true. The argument that Jesus is really the only ultimate head of the church. If you have some emotion there, that's okay with me because that's true. If you believe that we should have more women, not less, working in ministry, and you have some emotion there, I'm okay with that because that's true. But don't let that legitimate emotion be attached to the straw man argument because then that emotion might be aimed at me when I agree with you on every one of those accounts. Emotional arguments create impatience and sometimes animosity against sound biblical teachings. In other words, when you hear those kind of faulty arguments and you begin to think about, about fairness and equality, you can get to the point where when you hear a legitimate Bible truth, it's distasteful to you. I was at a, a meeting on this topic, a small group meeting that was organized so that in every small group there would be people that had varying views. This was as part of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee that we had this meeting. And uh, in this particular meeting, we were going to be discussing 1 Corinthians 11 and 14. Our moderator, a nice person socially, didn't get a chance to look at those two chapters until just a minute, I mean, in terms of that day, until just a few minutes before our meeting began. And I was sitting at the table when the moderator opened up and read 1 Corinthians 11 to see what passage we're going to be discussing. And I'm trying to shield the gender of the moderator. But the moderator said, I don't like this passage. What I'm trying to tell you is watch that in yourself. You don't want faulty arguments to create in you a distaste for Bible truth. You don't want to have an approach to Scripture that allows you to decide whether or not you like it or not. You want an approach to Scripture to see whether or not it approves of you or not. And if it doesn't approve of you, well then what a wonderful opportunity you have. Proverbs 1 said, do you remember verse 23 when we read it? Turn you at my reproof 
Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. That is our chance when we don't like what the Bible says, but we submit to it anyway. When we turn our lives to harmonize with what we read, that is when God pours out his spirit. Let's talk about a few more weak arguments. Look at Psalm 68. If you have a King James Bible like I do, you won't see this argument in your Bible. But I'll tell you about it anyway, because probably you should be able to see it. Psalm 68, and I think it's verse 5, but let me just find it here. Oh, it's verse 11. Psalm 68 and verse 11. The Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those that published it. The reason it doesn't show up in your King James Version, the key idea, is because in English the word company is gender neutral. That is, company could be a company of boys or a company of girls or a company of boys and girls. But here, it's very plain that it's feminine in the Hebrew. And so some translations are going to say, great was the company of ladies who published it. And don't you see a powerful argument there in favor of women's ordination? <laughs> but let me back you up for just a minute, because you should know that this is one of the favorite verses of many of the ladies who worked and promoted the three angels' messages between 1880 and 1950. Do you know there were many churches during periods of that time that were served by more ladies than by men? That was because many ladies entered the workforce as canvassers. A number of ladies were doing Bible work, like I mentioned to you Haskell's wife, Betty, already. And the canvassers particularly liked this verse in the King James because what's the verb in it? Published, right? So that this verse was used by canvassing ladies and canvassing men all over the planet. It was their favorite verse. Great was the company of those who published it. But none of them ever thought that that meant they ought to be ordained to be the overseers of the church. This just isn't an argument in favor of overseer, overseers being girls. It's an argument in favor of ladies being helpful. And we all agree on that. Turn to Joel chapter 2. I hesitated a little bit whether to include this in weak arguments because so many people consider this a strong one. And if I was very honest with you, every argument in, fa in favor of women's ordination seems to me to be a weak argument. But after thinking it through carefully, I concluded that this ought to be in the weak argument section. Joel chapter 2, and we're going to look at verse 28, one of the most precious promises in the entire Old Testament. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. 
Would you agree with me that when the latter rain is poured out, that it will be gender neutral? Pretty clear in the passage, isn't it? And would you even agree that it's going to be uh, age neutral? That there might even be children that receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Do you think there might even be invalids in bed that receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? That there might be persons that, when God pours out his spirit on all flesh, when he gives us that wonderful outpouring of his spirit, it is going to be pervasive, and I am glad. But let me ask you, will that be a brand new thing, or has God in the past poured out his spirit on children and ladies and even old ladies and old men? I think you know the answer. When Jesus was just a little baby, was he filled with the Spirit? He was, but he wasn't the only one. What about his cousin? Was John filled with the Spirit? Was he qualified as an infant to be the overseer of a church? I just want you to see that being filled with the Spirit is not the only qualification. And when Jesus was taken to Jerusalem and was there for dedication, there was a man there, a very, we, we'll call him an elder, an elder man. And wasn't there, there also a very old woman? Were they filled with the Spirit? I don't know how fit or able they were at that stage to take oversight of a church. And I don't want to make a comment about it because maybe they were at their, how old was that lady? It seems to me she was almost 100 years old. It seems to me that feasibly, maybe at that age they even could have been, but it looks to me also like the man was ready to die. Isn't that what he had to say after he held Jesus? Lord, now let your servant go in peace. Is the Bible, does it have examples of female prophets or only of female mothers? Are there, there are a number of female prophets, right? So that what I'm trying to tell you is that when the latter rain is poured out, it's going to be a beautiful thing. It's going to accomplish a great deal. And there's part of me who wants to stop preaching about women's ordination even right now and just preach about getting ready for the latter rain. It so much more matches what I'm inclined to do. But I'll tell you, it's not going to be new in terms of age and gender. It's just what has been done since times immemorial, that God pours out his spirit on those who are ready. And when we read in Proverbs 1, that when we turn, he pours out his spirit on us, even Proverbs 1 is gender neutral. Ladies, you can have more of God's spirit. But if it's nothing new to have God's spirit poured out on children, then it doesn't teach us anything about the question of women being ordained to the position of overseer. I think you know that both in the Reformation and even in the Millerite movement uh, that God used children. I'm thinking of Scandinavia right now. It's still well known in some parts of Scandinavia about this event. It was so, it was so significant when it happened that it ended, it ended up in the the talk of the people, and when I was there just a little over a year ago, I found that people still know about the time when the children began to preach like adults. When God moved upon the children even to give the first angel's message, 
But you know, after they were moved to preach in the very language of the first angel's message, uh, fear God and give glory to him, after that little sermon, then they acted very much like children. Were they qualified to take the oversight of churches? No. God has given us instructions for us to follow in choosing who's going to take the oversight of churches. I'm trying to avoid being hyper-repetitive. So I'm going to go to the next one. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were naked. It doesn't seem that they were ashamed to be naked in each other's presence after they sinned. But they were ashamed to be naked in the presence of a third party. And when they knew that God was coming, they sewed together leaves to make an apron. But when God came, he wasn't satisfied with that dubiously modest apparel. And he made for them tunics or coats out of skin. And it had to break their heart to see an animal die. And maybe that was, in fact, I think it probably was the first death in the history of the universe of an animal that could have an emotion. And it was done by God himself. It had to be a serious time for Adam and Eve when they were covered with those skins. Let's turn back to that passage. It's in Genesis. We could probably find it without me. I didn't write down the passage because I figured I could find it. Genesis chapter 3 and uh, verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Now I want to talk to you briefly here about a hermeneutic because if I don't explain it, you won't even see how this could be an argument for anything. Because there are people who seriously teach that verse 21 is evidence that Eve was ordained a priest. And you can read verse 21 as much as you want and you're probably not going to see it. So I want to tell you how they get there because for them it's not a joke. It's a very serious approach to Bible study. But I think it's misguided at the very most fundamental level. Do you see in verse 21 that it does talk about skins? And do you see there it does talk about coats and about clothed, being clothed? And... Uh, do you know that there are other parts of the Bible that talk about clothing and skins? The next ones you're going to come to would be in connection with the sanctuary. And really, that's where you're going to find some of the next references to death. I mean, you could kill an animal for the purpose of making clothing, and you could kill an animal for the purpose of offering a sacrifice. But to take 
the fact that animals are killed for sacrifice and that the priest wears special clothes. And then to take the fact that the same words are used in this verse and to use it to say that Eve was consecrated a priest, what I want to tell you is that is not the way a common man approaches the Bible. You could look for other passages about God speaking or addressing issues of modesty or helping men with their sin problem or providing covers of righteousness. You would find so much material in Genesis 3 that would be enriching to you. But when you connect passages that don't have any inherent bearing on each other because they use the same words, do you see that this argument, this type of reasoning matches better with verbal inspiration than it does with thought inspiration? The idea that, that special code words or keywords are used in apparently unrelated passages to show us that they relate to each other, that idea matches well with that evangelical idea that God gave the Bible by dictation. But if, in fact, God gave the idea to Moses that he prepared tunics out of skins to clothe Adam and Eve, and Moses used the words that made sense to him that were in his mind, you know, he might use the very same words for that that he would use later to describe the clothing of priests. I mean, how many words were there in Hebrew for clothing people? I feel like saying more about this, but I don't want to put you to sleep. But if you find in one of my letters that I say, come to my front door, and when you get to the entrance, go ahead and open it by the knob. I hope that you would not think that the reason I use the word door and the word entrance differently, those two words, is because I want you to catch the subtle difference between them. It might be because I use variety in my writing. But when people have this verbal concept of inspiration, they often abuse scripture by looking for those kind of subtle differences where none were ever intended by the prophet at all. And then if you use those to try to make connections, anyway, it's nonsense. What I want you to see is what you can read Genesis 3 yourself, and you'll find no evidence that Eve was a priest even before she was kicked out of the garden. Was this before she was kicked out of the garden? Yeah, that's what it was. No evidence that she was a priest to act in her own behalf in the time of her uh, rejection for her sin. Let's turn to Acts chapter 18. <clears throat> Acts chapter 18 is a, uh, <clears throat> a passage that is referred to often in literature I've seen promoting women's ordination, but it's not very often quoted. That is, there's a reference made to it, but the words in the verse are not in the reference. Kind of like a sentence is given, and then in parentheses, the reference, but rarely is it... I've said that three times, so you understand it. Look at verse... Uh, 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue that he there would be uh, Apollos. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue 
whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. Do you see evidence there that Aquila was the overseer of Apollos? That she was the elder appointed to uh, teach him Christian doctrine? There's nothing like that there at all. What the passage shows is a couple ministry, Aquila and Priscilla together. And what are they doing together? Is it formal or informal education? You know it's, in, it's informal education. They took them to him privately and they instructed him in the way of the Lord. To take this beautiful passage of a godly couple noticing a talented man preaching without the full knowledge of truth and the godly couple engaging him in conversation and bringing him privately and giving him Bible studies and to use that to say that we ought to ordain women to be uh, elders is to accidentally teach a very foolish idea. It's to teach the only ordained people ought to give Bible studies like that. And I don't want you to go away advocating that you need ordination to give Bible studies. I don't have, well, I've been ordained as a local elder, but before I was ordained as a local elder, I was giving studies. And I hope if you never get ordained as anything that you will give studies. Aquila and Priscilla gave studies because they knew the gospel and saw a man that didn't know it, and they mentored him together. There is a danger in what I'm doing, and I hope that you will not be affected by it. When we talk about weak arguments, we might be tempted to read into them willful ignorance. But it's not true that people who use weak arguments are, could be generally described as willfully ignorant. More often, it's that their minds are clouded and they've been trained by a system that leads them to look to men as a source of authority. And because they've been looking to men as a source, when they find men that are gifted at speaking, gifted at writing, and when they find a consensus among wise men, that seems that we don't know that question we started with, where is the scribe? Where is the wise man? Where is the disputer of this world? If we don't know the answer to that question, then we look in that consensus and we begin to feel comfortable with the ideas that they're promoting. That's not sensible. And until we, until we give real test to our thoughts, we'll never know just how strong they are. The Ten Commandments are written in a gender-specific language. Uh, the command there is that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. But I think, ladies, that you know that it would also be wrong for you to covet your neighbor's husband. And someone, a number of people, in noticing that gender neutrality that's hidden under that gender specificity in the Ten Commandments, have thought if we do that with the Ten Commandments, 
why don't we do that more generally with other passages? If we do it even in the the Ten Commandments themselves, written with the finger of God, that ultimate authority, if we are willing to say that even they should be understood in a gender-neutral, excuse me, a gender-neutral way, why don't we do that in 1 Timothy 2 and 3? Now, I bring this up because I hear this argument, but in a way the answer has to be redundant because it was said very eloquently by our panelists just an hour ago. But nonetheless, do you remember some of the things they said? When we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3, do we find that the, a gender statement, are all the statements masculine there so, so that we could easily think of them as applying to men and women? Or are there gender-specific statements in 1 Timothy 2 and 3? Why, there are more gender-specific statements in 1 Timothy 2 and 3 in concentration than anywhere else I know in the entire New Testament. They're just there, back and forth, men and women. And when, if I say to you in common conversation that uh, all you guys can come to my house for lunch, probably you would understand that to be gender neutral. And you should be happy because my wife is a good cook. In that context, because I don't mention guys and gals, because of what I say, the gender neutrality is kind of apparent. But if I said, I want the guys to take off their shoes, but the gals can keep them on, you would never make the word guys gender neutral. The context would tell you that there's gender specific, I can't even say that word, but you know the word I'm trying to come up with. It's gender specific. That's the way it is in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3. The reason that we don't read their gender neutrality is because we can't do it without losing our common sense approach to the scripture. We're not denying that there's gender, gender neutrality in scripture, but we're saying that it's apparent without a lot of trouble in most cases whether you should understand a passage that way or not. So I know I'm speaking to a YouTube audience, and everything in me is inclined to say, does anyone have any questions? But I can just see I shouldn't do that. Uh, but you know, if you do have questions, there is a book that's been published by Amazing Facts called, it's called Women's Ordination, 31 uh, Biblical Arguments and Answers. You ought to read it if you still have questions. You ought to think it through because I don't know any argument that doesn't have a solid Bible answer. And if you don't want to spend the money to buy it, I think Amazing Facts would still be happy if I told you that there are several free places online where you can get that book as a, a mobile format or a PDF. I can't go to the end of my list of weak arguments, so I'm glad I mentioned to you the book. So instead of going to the end, let me just review a couple key ideas. Faith is taking God at his word. Righteousness is by faith. Righteousness is by taking God at his word. Jesus said that man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's in the Bible three times, that idea. 
Also, the Bible says the just shall live by faith. Either there are two ways to live, by faith and by every word, or else those are the same idea. That's what faith is. Faith is living by every word. And when we come to Scripture humbly, when we take it as it reads, when we let it correct us, when we turn when it tells us to turn, that is when God pours out His Spirit on us. That is when He teaches us the meaning of His Bible, and that is when the weak arguments will lose their effect. That is when the straw man arguments will mean nothing to us. The Bible will teach us the truth. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.